We will be in 2 Samuel 8. If you were here last week, you already know this, but if you weren't, let me give you the context of chapter 8. What did God tell David in chapter 7? No. David was gung-ho on building a temple, and God told him no. You can't do that. Why? Because he was a man of war. The temple was that space, that overlap. It was where heaven meets earth, and it was to be a place of shalom and peace, a prayer for all nations. And so David, being a man of war, God said, you're not the guy. Has God ever said no to you? An opportunity, a ministry, an idea, a prospective spouse, and God says no. <laughs> Do you know that God can say no? Ah. Paul, the apostle Paul, his heart was for the Jews, and guess what God said? No. God says no all the time. The big question is, how do we respond when God is God and he does what he wants to do because he's God? Do we mope and complain or just quit? This is where David, the specialness of David begins to shine through. We'll see his warts. They're coming really quick. We're at like the pinnacle of David and the, the warts coming. But right now, this is what makes David super successful and special. God says no to him. He doesn't mope. He doesn't complain. He is faithful to what God has called him to be. Okay, I'm a man of war. Okay. The New Testament puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. It is required. Not recommended. It is required. Not an option. It is required of leaders to be found faithful. There's really very few requirements in the Bible for leadership. One of them is you have to be faithful. We already know that. If you're young and there's some people around you that you kind of look up to, why do you look up to older people as a mentor, as someone that you say, I want to follow in their footsteps? What qualities do they have? If you're a young man, you're looking up to someone that's older, an older man, is it, are you looking up to him because, man, check out the abs on that 80-year-old. That's awesome. No way. It's the course of his life for 80 years has been a long obedience in the same direction. And the character and the quality of his life is such that you say, that's what I want to be when I'm 80. I want to be him when I grow up. That's what it is. It's faithful people. This is David. David's like, okay. You said no to me. That's fine. I'm going to bloom where you've planted. This is what I'm called to be. This is what I am. I'm a warrior. And so I'm going to do what warriors do. I'm going to be faithful to that. To me, when I think about the world we live in today, faithfulness is a lost virtue. And maybe it's the pace, like things have just picked up 
The pace that people lived at 3,000 years ago was so different than our pace today. Faithfulness has just gone out the door. We're in a now culture, right? I want it and I want it now. Everything's that way. I'm 50. I remember growing up, my mom would take pictures and she'd have 36 pictures on a roll of film. It would take her two months, three months to fill up that roll. Then she would put it in an envelope and send it off somewhere that they'd have it for a month and then we'd get the pictures back. And by the time we got the pictures back, we didn't look like the pictures anymore. Like, hey, that's not even me. I don't know who that kid is. That's a different pace. Then it was Polaroids, right? It was 10 minutes. Like, wow, this is amazing, 10 minutes. Now it's a tenth of a second. That's just the pace. How about shipping now? Right, you go to Amazon, if it's anything longer than two days, you're like, this is cruel and unusual punishment. Get my package here now. Right, letters, remember writing letters when you were a kid? You'd send them off, be a week or two, they'd get it, they'd read it, they'd send it back, be a month between letters. And there was email, and email, like you could have 24 hours before you respond to an email, that's like common. Text message, you don't respond in five minutes, like that's rude. Someone needs to die, right? So it's just this pace of life. It's just pushed faithfulness out the door. There's not the pace anymore. There's a couple areas where you still can't force pace on it. Moms and farmers, right? It's nine months for a mom and it's eight months for an apple, right? You're not pushing the pace on those things. And maybe because that was the culture where you're agrarian and you're raising children, that because of that, you're this steady obedience, that you had to follow harvest all the way through or you didn't succeed, that that built into a community faithfulness. And now we've got to find new ways to be faithful. So David here, there's two areas he's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful in what he's called to do. He's a warrior. We look at it from the 21st century and part of it's like, Ugh! but sometimes war is necessary. So there's his faithful to his call as a warrior, and he's faithful to his word, the word that he gives to somebody. Brilliant. Let's jump in. First Samuel, chapter eight, verse one. So, no, you can't because you're a man of war, okay? Then I'm gonna do war. After this, after what? Being told by God, no, can't build the temple because you're a man of war. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdue them. And David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Brutal. What's David doing? Being a man of war, right? If this is my call, then I'm gonna do it faithfully so that I can hand over to my children a land of peace, which is exactly what he does. This reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by John Adams, our second president. He was in England trying to get or he was in France, excuse me, trying to get help against the English because we are in the war of independence. 
So he goes over there. He's the ambassador. He's trying to tell the French, please help us in this war. It will help you. And the French, when he goes over there, they wanted John Adams to like play and party. And they said this, John, why are you so serious? Why do you talk war and politics? Why don't you loosen up and listen to music and paint? And he gave this answer. And I thought it was brilliant. He said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study math and philosophy. My sons ought to study math, philosophy, geography, history, architecture, commerce, in order to give their children a right to study painting and poetry and enjoy music. I love that. It's a longer view than me. It's I'm here to serve something. So I hand over to my children a better place. And this is what David's doing. So the Philistines have been the number one enemy of Israel going all the way back to Samson and Judges. Hundreds of years. David puts an end to it. The Moabites, I don't know why he's so cruel to them. I have no idea why. His great-grandmother, Ruth, is a Moabite. When his family's in trouble, when Saul is trying to kill him, 1 Samuel 22, he takes his parents and moves them to Moab and they take care of them. I don't know. The Bible sometimes records things that it does not condone. It just records them as history. I don't know why David did this, but he does. So he pushes. Verse three, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta and from Berothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. So David hears that this king called Hadad-Ezer has to go all the way to the Euphrates River. If you know, it's about 800 miles from Jerusalem. So his western flank is open. So David says, brilliant, and attacks. The Syrians must have had an agreement with Hadad-Ezer to a treaty or something. We'll help you if someone goes to war with you. So they come down, and it's two birds with one stone. And he gets Damascus. Damascus is one of the key cities in the ancient, Near East, in the ancient Middle East. Here's why. There were two routes from Europe to Africa, and they both went around Israel. One's called the Way of the Sea that went through the Philistine lands, and then the other one's called the King's Highway that went on the, just the east side of the Jordan River. Guess where they come together? Damascus. So it was a way that you would control and tax trade. Like Damascus is always a powerful city because it's on this trade route. It'd be like where Interstate 80 that crosses the United States and Interstate 5 connect. 
That's gonna be a very, very vital place for trade. That was Damascus. Now David's got it. He's got power and money. And he takes a bunch of these horses and he says he hamstrings them. Why would he do that? Because when God put Israel as a monarchy, he had rules for the kings because he said, I don't want the kings to be like the kings of other nations where they kind of rise up in power and they start to just really hurt their people. So he said, you guys can't have a bunch of chariots. You can't have a bunch of horses. You can't have a bunch of wives and you can't have a bunch of gold. You can't do the things other kings do. I don't want that kind of a kingdom where it's this powerful person on top that then just puts down the lower people. So God had put in these rules so David knew that. But he didn't want these horses to be able to come to war with him again. So if you hamstring a horse, what it does is it prevents it from pulling a chariot, but it can still be used as a farm animal. So he does the most humane thing he can. But... It tells us he kept a hundred chariots. Chariots were not useful in Israel. They weren't supposed to have them and they weren't useful because it's really hilly, rocky country. You just couldn't use them there. So the question is, why? Why did he take these? David's starting to be a little bit loose in some things. We gotta know he's getting too many wives. God said, don't multiply wives. He's already done that. We've read about that. We've looked at that. He keeps kind of adding on women. He's got a women problem. It's gonna come up shortly. And now he's taking on some chariots as well. You know, not a ton, but some. He's crossing some lines here that are beginning to show some cracks. And to me, here's the real problem. He maybe doesn't go too far, but how about his son Solomon? Solomon gets 3,000 chariots. And how many women does Solomon have? A thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Like those numbers are just staggering to me. Like it's just, you're just like, what in the world? That's just insanity. What's his shoe bill? Like FedEx is just dropping pallets of Amazon stuff down to him. He's like, ah, my bills, what's going on here, right? Like the numbers are just insane. So David just crossed the line a little bit and Solomon just goes, boom, blows through it. I think it's a lesson for us right here. We gotta be very careful as parents. I do not believe in generational curses. I don't think God curses children because of their parents. Ezekiel 18 tells us, uh-uh, don't use this proverb anymore. Our Parents ate sour grapes, and that's why our teeth are set on edge. That's not the way it's going to happen in Israel. I don't believe in generational curses. I do believe in generational courses. That the course I set as a dad hacks a path through life that my kids will naturally follow. There's a course I set. So David sets this little course. I'm going to take some extra wives. I'm going to take some chariots. Solomon's like, okay, my dad did it. Why not me? I can't tell you how many times I've sat in premarital counseling with a couple and explained to them God's design on marriage. That God says, wait to get sex involved until you're married. Invest in her soul. 
Invest in his spirit. Invest in each other's dreams because when it goes physical, it's all a guy thinks about. So you wait until you build up those other areas until they're strong enough to carry the relationship through when sex isn't the only thing you're thinking about, right? That's God's design. It's a good design. It's brilliant. And then I'll have the fiance, one of them say, oh, well, my parents had sex before they got married and they're fine. Okay. Huh? Done deal then. Okay. Like, huh? that negates everything you just said. My parents did it. I can do it. Or this one I hear a lot. When I'm talking to a couple that's headed toward divorce. Well, my parents got divorced and we didn't turn out that bad. Oh, okay. Right? You have to little course in the jungle. And now my kids are following me down it. Even though I'll say, have you read the longevity study? A study that's gonna be impossible to reproduce in our lifetime. Where a whole bunch of 1,500 kindergartners were looked at in 1915 and followed until every single one of them died. And they looked at what were the leading causes, what some stuff we can learn from this. And in longevity, the number one predictor of an early death in those kids, guess what it was? Divorced parents. And they had no idea why. We don't know why, but something happens in the psyche of a child. Maybe they try harder things or they do, we don't know why. Be careful, mom, dad in here. How I choose the course of my life today, it's making the easiest path for my kids to follow. Be so careful how we live our lives. David just went a little and Solomon just turned up the amp to 10, right? Verse nine, when toy, King of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer. Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him for Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to Yahweh together with the silver and gold he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself and he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And Yahweh gave great victory to David wherever he went. Toy is one smart king. He's like, wow, this guy is tough. I'm gonna take my son with a giant gift and send him over there and bless him. And we're gonna be buddies, right? That is a smart thing to do because David's getting a name and his name is this, don't mess with him. He's bad, don't mess with him. And it says he collects all this cash together. Second Chronicles, which is another account of David in chapter 22, verse 14 says this. It was 7.5 million pounds of gold and 75 million pounds of silver, which actually isn't a phenomenal amount because gold is so heavy, 
But do you know what 7.5 million pounds of gold is worth today? A cool $220 billion, right? That's Elon Musk right there. The silver, ah, just $24 billion, right? That's a massive amount of money. He has collected together essentially all the gold of that region of the Middle East as he defeated these powers. And what does he do with it? Does he sit on it? Does he take Instagram pictures? Look at me, woohoo! What does he do with it? Gives it all to God. David has his faults. David has his weaknesses. But David is not a greedy man. Throughout the life of David, we've never seen him worried about money. He's never a guy that's worried about cash. He's never a guy that's like trying to get more and more and more money. He is not a man that struggles with greed. He could care less about $250 billion. Yeah, just give it to God. Okay. <laughs> when you look at the total amount, the total amount given in the Bible, David is by far and away the most generous person in Scripture. He has his weaknesses, no doubt. Generosity, though. He is a generous, generous man. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests or ministers. So, this is his cabinet. What a lean government David runs, isn't it? We could learn a lesson. No deficits here, right? Very small. And they're not only ruling Israel, they're ruling these vassal states that they've defeated kind of all around them. Now, why could they do that so well? Because the entire nation was dedicated to the law of God. So there was no like debating whether this thing was right or wrong. There was no appeal courts. It was, this is the law of God, and we are submitting to the law of God. And if we don't submit to the law of God, we realize the punishment that will come from it. So it made it really lean and really simple and really good. And it says this about David. He ruled with justice, and in my Bible, equity. The Hebrew words here are huge in Scripture. It's Mizpah, justice. And Sadaqah, better translation is righteousness. That if you know your Old Testament, over and over these two words appear and they are what God wants. He wants justice, Mizpah, and he wants righteousness, Sadaqah. Both of them. Now, left-leaning people, they want justice. Justice for the poor, justice for the oppressed right? But they're not so much into righteousness. Right-leaning people want righteousness, right? Don't do those things wrong. Steward your sexuality this way, right? So left people, yeah, we love just, or we love the sadaqah, 
or the Mizpah, the justice. We want that for oppressed people. And then the right-leaning people, no, we want righteousness. God says, I want them both. Both. That a good nation has both rightness and it has justice as well. And David here rules with both of them. I think it's very important for Christians because we can swing between these two very often. And like most, most things in scripture, the only way they make sense is when there is a real tension in your heart. It's like a tension bridge. The only way it stays up is if both sides are pulling really hard. Because if you go to either side of those things, you become something that's not biblical. If it's all justice and no righteousness, you're not biblical. If it's all righteousness and no justice, no care for the poor, no compassion, you become something else. And we gotta be careful. I can find it in my own heart. So a couple years ago, we picked up this little cottage in Brookings. It's 600 square feet. It's small. It's, it was a fixer-upper, and we've just kind of fixed it up. And so I went over there a couple months ago, and the neighbor, a good friend of mine, great guy, Tyler, and I'm talking to my neighbor, and he's like, hey, because there's this parking lot right in front of both of our houses. And he's like, there's this guy. He's pulling here every night, and he's been sleeping in here. And I was like, oh, oh that could be bad, right? What's going to happen? Is he going to steal something? Is he going to thrash something, right? That's going, he's like, yeah, I've been really worried about him. So I'm going to start parking my truck in my trailer and just kind of block off this whole area so he can't park there anymore. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of spinning my mind. Yeah, yeah, we got to make sure this is right. Okay, okay, you know, righteousness, righteousness. Then my wife comes and she's like, honey, did you see the green van that's parked out there? I'm like, oh yes, I saw that green van. You better believe I did, uh-huh. And she's like, oh, they're the sweetest couple. We should go make them dinner. That's what we should do. Yeah, we should do that. That's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. That's what we should do, right? Because I can swing real quick. I be careful of my own heart. If I start going one side or the other, there should be a tension as we walk around our city and we see things. Righteousness, yes. Justice, yes. And when you have that right tension, you have God's heart. And when you don't, you don't have his heart. See, David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Sadaqah and Mizpah. He balances both those things beautifully and well. And he gets God's heart. Brilliant. Now, chapter nine. One of those most amazing stories And it's David's faithfulness to his word. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, previous kingdom, right? The dynasty that he had come in behind of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. So he's faithful to his word. If you remember back in 1 Samuel, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Jonathan, Saul's son, the rightful next king that gets killed in battle. And he says, listen, if anything ever happens to me, take care of my descendants. And if anything ever happens to you, I'll take care of your descendants. And so David made a covenant with Jonathan. And now, years later, everyone's dead that would have known about it. No one knows about it except for David. And what does David say? I gave my word. I gave my word. And so I'm going to keep my word. Do people keep their word today? 
We have a saying now, right? Hey, get it in writing. Why? Because no one keeps their word. And even if you get it in writing, what can happen? There's always a loophole. There's always a loophole. Lawyers have a saying. They say, the big print gives away. The small print taketh away. Right? Because there's always loopholes. No one keeps their word anymore. You know how much better the world would be if people simply kept their word to be heaven? I love people that whatever they say, they do. Like the previous generations had this saying, it was, my word is my bond. You know what that meant? I don't have to give it to you in writing. I don't have to have a $1 million bond because my word is my bond. If I tell you I will do this, I will do this. And this is David. If I said I will do it, I will do it. So David now has pushed out and there's actually a west push, north push, east push, and a southern push. He just expands out. He has peace now. And when he's in peace, he sits down. And I'll tell you, peace is more dangerous than war for a man's soul. There's nothing more dangerous than a bored man. And we're gonna see that in chapter 11. Nothing more dangerous than a bored man. We gotta be careful. You know, men, the most... The two most dangerous days in a man's life, you know what they are? The day that we are born, the two most likely days you will die. The day you were born, and number two, the day you retire. So statistically, when men get bored, look out, bad things happen. So David here, he's playing it safe now. He's, he's nothing to do, but this time, by God's spirit, he's reminded of this promise. And he says, I want to give Hased. Hased is a love that gives 100% not wanting something in return. I want to give Hased, it's translated kindness. I want to give him kindness. I want to give him Hased. So they call in some people. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And they said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the hesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So uh, maybe you remember chapter five, month ago, when Jonathan and Saul die in battle, King Saul and his son, Mephibosheth, this guy's this crippled, his dad, they know, look out, because when a king gets killed and the enemy wins, they flood into that territory, rape and pillage. So a nurse picks up the king's grandson, Mephibosheth, goes running with him, stumbles, falls on him, breaks his legs. They don't have time for medical attention. They've got to get out or they're doomed because you always kill the king's sons and grandsons because they're a threat to the coming the new king. So they just got to get out of Dodge. So they never heal right. He's a cripple for his entire life. So maybe you remember that. That's this guy. He's wounded at age five and he never heals from it. So his uncle's king for a while. He's okay. But then when David becomes king, he has to leave Israel and actually goes and lives in another land. It's hard, hard times for this guy. So verse four. And Mephibosheth, excuse me, the king said to him, where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. So this guy is royalty. And yet he's renting a room for this guy named Machir. That's how poor he is. He's in Lodebar. The name literally means no pasture. So whoever was going through there the first time and named the place, they're like, this is a terrible, godforsaken country. There's no pasture here. Keep moving. It'd be like Death Valley. Like you can't grow anything there. So he's in Lodebar, no pasture. Nasty. He's crippled. And he gets called by the new king. Normally, if you get called by the new king and you're the old king's grandson, guess what that meant for you? You're getting your head cut off. That's what kings did. So he's got these these childhood haunting memories still coming back for him. He's like, ah, this woundedness. There's a great book by John Eldred's called Wild at Heart, where he said, we have an enemy who strategically, especially in the heart of boys, tries to wound us deeply when we're five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, in such a way that cripples us for the rest of our life. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. That's Mephibosheth right here. So what does he say? Verse David said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm a dead dog. Like we love dogs today. But 3,000 years ago, they were scavengers. You go to a third world country, right? people don't like pet dogs. You don't touch a dog because they're nasty. They've been rolling in something you don't want to touch. So this is, like a, this is him saying, hey, David, I am not a threat to your kingdom, right? Woof, woof, I'm not a threat. Don't worry about me. And David said, you don't have to worry at all. I'm going to set you up. Look at verse 9. Then David called Ziba. Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. And now he was lame in both his What a story. David's faithful to his promise and sets up this guy for life. 
He was in exile before, lived in Lodabar, outside of Israel. Now he's home. He was renting a room in someone else's house. Now he's got a king's mansion. He lived in no pasture where you couldn't raise food anymore. Now he every day eats at the king's table. He was fearful and hiding, wondering when an assassin would come and kill him. Now he's elevated and safe and secure. Is this not a perfect picture of our salvation? The faithful king calls us. We've been wounded. We've been hurt. We've been crippled by this world, by the way it is, by war, by how people have treated us and mistreated us. And those wounds go deep. And it feels like we live in no pasture where there's nothing good happening. And all of a sudden we get the king's call. The king we used to be afraid of, the God we were afraid of, the God that we hid from. And he's like, no, don't be afraid. No, don't be afraid. I'm gonna set you up for life. Mephibosheth, one translation, puts his name meaning this, the destroyer of shame. What a great name. He probably didn't understand. He's like, destroyer of shame, that's all I've known my whole life. Crippled, exiled, living in someone else's house, unable to pasture the land. I own nothing. What do you mean, destroyer of shame? But now with the king's call, all the shame he would have known as he sat at the king's table like one of the king's son was destroyed. It's the most brilliant story in the Bible, I think. This is our story. And I could talk to us about how we're supposed to be faithful and there's a truth to that, no doubt about it. And David is a great example of that. But even better is how faithful our king is. He's so faithful to me when I've run from him, when I've hid from him, he comes after me and helps me fulfill my destiny, the good works that he's prepared in advance for me. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that says this, when we, when we deny, he cannot deny, he remains faithful. God's Response is not dependent upon me and my crippledness and my woundedness and my fleeing and whatever. No, God is always the faithful one. That's what this story is. David is a picture of how faithful Jesus is to each one of us, to call us and to restore us and to bring us back to the king's table where we belong. And so Jesus today, I pray for any in here feel like they've been exiled. Feel like they've been on the run. Feel like there's no pasture for them. There's no room for them. There's no hope for them. Oh, may they hear the king's call today. We are invited to be sons and daughters and to sit at your table, covering our shame, covering our crippledness, adopted into your family. What good news this is. I pray today that you would destroy any shame in our hearts for our past, that we would not be defined by our crippledness or our grandfathers or our issues, but we would be defined by what you say about us, that we are kids of the king. And we pray this in your name. 
Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.